Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as always, by two friends, childhood one, Chris Dow. Live from Folsom Prison. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Ten stone of solid bones. And we're discussing (laughs) our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into this episode, we want to give you a few useful reminders. First of all, do please check out our YouTube channel. Head over to YouTube, search for Our Three Cents, and you can find all of our amazing premium video content. By premium, I don't mean you have to pay for it. It's ruddy free. So in exchange, perhaps you want to like it and subscribe to the channel. That would be great. There is all kinds of stuff. There's streaming content, including the recent Inky Dunk series where me and Minty have been playing through the Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus. There is mini documentaries about the history of video games. There's our three cents approved videos where we're focusing on games that are featured on all three of our lists. There's so many great things. So do please head over and check that out. We also now have extra video content as a perk for our Patreon scheme. If you want to get more out of the podcast, if you're just that gosh darn hungry, then head over to (laughs) patreon.com slash r3cents. Have a look at some of the perks up for grabs. There are things like full bonus episodes, including our most recent full bonus episode, all about motion controls in games. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Find out what we thought over there. You can get access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord channel as well, which is just such a fruitful place for video game chat. So this week we have Chris's eighth favourite video game of all time. We've done done the number tens, we've done the number nines, and we're doing number eights. Which, if we're applying the laws of code for bodily excretions, this is getting snot everywhere. Number eight. Have you done a number eight? Yeah. Yeah, followed a big sneeze. Did a number eight. Hopefully your game is going to be significantly better to look at than a big sneeze, but hopefully it is equally as satisfying. Yeah. But before we dive into that, it is time to return to the Colosseum of the quiz, where the score is, I mean, it's just, it's been so close throughout this entire two year, two and a bit year. I don't, I, how many, I don't know how long we've been doing this now. But a long time. A long time, a long time. And it's maintained its neck and neck status throughout consistently. But Chris does have a one point lead. We've got each other in a headlock. But this week, Chris is the one given the noogie. That's it. <laughs> you're, you're slightly closer to submission. <laughs> All it takes is for you to kind of just tap the rope with your foot. And that's a, that's a break. You're back in it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quiz. Highly rated skateboarding game Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. Oh. Which famous Marvel comic book character? Spider Man. Oh, fuck. The correct answer is Spider Man. Yeah. Oh. Well done, Minty. Wow. Oh. Back in it. Oh, there we go. It's there's there's two questions left of this pack of questions because it's a pack of a hundred questions that I was given as a birthday present from my friend Dan McGowan. And uh, initially, we were going to space that over 100 episodes. Obviously, we're spacing the third series out just so it's so it's so thin, like butter scraped over too much bread. Mm. <laughs> but it does mean that we're going to run out of questions from the box. But do not fear, for I have so many things up my sleeves. It looks like I've got Popeye's triceps. <laughs> <laughs> So we've had another question come in from the social media sphere. This time from a man who Google translates informs me it's called John White. <laughs> Avid listener, longtime fan of the podcast and Welshman, Yoan Gwyn, has asked us if we had to get a gaming tattoo on our arse, what would it be? Now, we are more dedicated to our fans than we are highbrow. And in light of recent gaming activity being spent pissing out turds, wheeze and bums in the Binding of Isaac, I think we can lower the tone from the outset of this episode. Oh, absolutely. And I've given this a fair bit of thought, and 
I was thinking, I mean, I don't have a tattoo. If I was going to get one, it would be something very simple, very moving. To maintain a bit of dignity, something like an icon, like a Pokeball or something like that. And then I thought, actually, just a little little mushroom icon from Mario, I think would be quite nice. Like just a little, little one up uh, upon my right butt cheek. And then uh, underneath it, it would say here. And above it, it would say, don't stick. Don't stick one up. Oh, you bastards. <laughs> oh. How about you, Minty? You, you are a tattooed man. Yes, yes. I have a few tattoos. For me, the, the importance of a tattoo is uh, not, not only the, the importance of the image itself, but also how it works within the contours of your body. I have a, I have a, a lovely fish on my forearm some nice lettering on my other arm which works nicely with uh, with my muscles and such as that so when it comes to the grand canvas of one's gluteus maximus the only thing you can really have is um an entire ass cheek dedicated to kirby <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to see him inhale no, no. that's a hell of a trick <laughs> <laughs> i used to have a friend who was renowned in our year group for farting and i used to walk to school with him and he was like he used to always tell people that um oh I've, my, my cat always rolls on its back and it lets out this really really big fart and then he was like don't tell anybody but i don't have a cat i'm the one that rolls on my back <laughs> and i suck air into my butt so i can push out all of my farts in one go <laughs> Yeah. What a skill. Chris, how about you? Well, like like you, Jonathan, I have no tattoos. Though I think I've mentioned this to both of you before. I made a decision a year or so ago that when this top hundred had wrapped, regardless of how long, you know, we've extended the project at that point, I wanted <laughs> to get a tattoo of some sort to commemorate some of the games at the very top of my list. Because Aww. for years I'd always thought that I'd never be interested in getting a tattoo because they obviously, you know, it's a permanent thing. It's, it's something that's going to last forever. And I'd always argue to myself that there was nothing I liked enough to, re, you know, retain personal relevance years down the line. These games, though, my, my favourites, have in some cases now been part of my character and consciousness for 10, 20, 25 years. Yeah. And, and I assume that all being well, that, you know, that time will just continue into the future. I'll still enjoy this stuff. But on my bum, <laughs> if I had to get something down <laughs> there, it has to be something that I don't like, surely. You know, alternatively, it could be something that you are, you do like, but you're a little bit embarrassed to show. So, for instance, if I had something signifying Tetris on my arm, I'd, I'd feel quite comfortable with that. But if it was something that I didn't necessarily want to show off in day-to-day -day life, maybe I could put it down there. So I thought that it could either be something I really despise, something I really, really despise, like the Chirac logo, maybe, <laughs> or maybe something that represents the very depths of the games that I do quite enjoy and play. So I could have like Big Bobby Car on one cheek and maybe oh, the uh, the horse from that game Whisper on the other. <laughs> 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 like, I honestly don't know. So, it's something shit though. Because the only person who's going to see it maybe is, you know, people at the beach if I choose to have a lounge in my Speedos. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so they, they can get an eyeful with uh, Big Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think Tetris would work as a really sick half sleeve. Yeah. Would, yeah. Yeah. There we go. One to consider. Mm. There we go. Well, hopefully that answers your question, John. <laughs> if anybody has any other questions of any sort of tone or nature that they'd like us to discuss in a future episode, please do get in touch with us on our social media channels. I will answer any question, no matter how embarrassing or incriminating. <laughs> Hold you to that. So what have we been playing this week? Chris, do you want to kick us off? Tell us what your gaming week or weeks have consisted of it's been a little while since we last recorded so for anyone you know this is your peek behind the curtain that sometimes depending on the order of how we we record things we might have a bit of a break week and that means that naturally i think all of us have probably played a little bit more than we normally would have uh, at least in what we kind of choose to highlight on, on one of these shows so i'll just kind of try and give the headlines of some of the stuff that i have enjoyed over the last fortnight or so on the Switch, I have started to get into Lonely Mountains Downhill. Oh, lovely game. Oh, it is lovely. And I remember you bringing it up quite a long time ago now, Jonathan. I think when it was mm. on, was it on Xbox Game Pass or something like that that you tried it on? Yeah, it could have been, yeah. But, you know, I'd seen, obviously, I'd heard you talk about it. I'd seen other people re recommend it highly. But I don't think I was prepared for, for how much I would enjoy it. Mm. And for anyone that's not played it, it's a quite a simple like mountain biking game. You navigate your own way down sort of 
different trails of a mountain, but it's set up in a really nice way that it can kind of let you just poodle along, get to the end in your own time, and that's fine. But it also lets you kind of treat it as, as something that's a bit more high stakes. And if you really want to kind of like push for fast times, as if you were playing something like Gran Turismo and trying to shave seconds off a lap time, it's right there because it's sorted. It has a really robust timing and checkpoint system. It's just a lot of fun to either, you know, have that leisurely experience with the nice ambient sound effects and foley work, or just trying to really blast it as fast as you can for, for better times. And I got a similar feeling to when I was really grinding away at Virtua Racing in Time Attack when that first released on the Switch, that it's got that same sort of compulsive loop as just a very good racing game. So yeah, that's that's really, really great. On the Vita, I have spent a few weeks now faffing with some unbelievable homebrew ports of the GTA trilogy from the PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah. Because now GTA 3, Vice City and San Andreas are all available on the Vita in, in some form. And I won't bore you all too much, but the first two games essentially, so that's 3 and Vice City, have been built from reverse engineered source code similar to Mario 64's PC port that I mentioned a while back. And as a result of that, they run incredibly well, even though the Vita is, you know, quite a low-powered handheld, essentially. So you're looking at performance that's significantly above and beyond the PlayStation 2 originals, a much higher resolution, lots of other quality of life tweaks built in, just really impressive stuff. But San Andreas is even more impressive because, although it may be my least favourite game of that trilogy because it kind of lost some of the other games' focus as it tried to really expand the world and what you could do in it, seeing it on a Vita is, is unbelievable. And there isn't a reverse engineered version of this. So what some really dedicated engineers have done is basically taken the Android game that released for all kind of smartphones and wrote a sort of wrapper that runs on the Vita and then interprets all the the commands and, and all the kind of code from the Android ports and just makes it work on the Vita. And that's just mind blowing that you can take something that's just not intended for a console at all and have it running as well as this does. Like, to set it up is not easy. It involves literally like picking apart the legit Android application via your phone and then inserting certain files here, there and everywhere on the Vita. But again, the fact that this is running at all is insane. And the fact that it's running as well as it is, is really, really, truly impressive. On top of that, they're now at the point where they're so comfortable with kind of how their engine works. They're fixing problems that were never fixed in the mobile port. <laughs> so the Vita is turning into the definitive handheld edition of this game, nice. even though the mobile port has been out for you know almost a decade now, I think, on smartphones. I'm not going to complete three 30 or 40 hour open world GTA games, <laughs> but it's really nice to have them here. And I, I feel really confident saying that if Sony had commissioned genuine ports of these games on the Vita when it was still alive and kicking, the fate of the console would have been very, very different because these are like landmark games. And it really is a crying shame that Sony just never supported their console as much as they should have, because clearly it's it's got the grunt to do some pretty impressive stuff if you, if you have the right people yeah. behind it. Lastly, and I'm sure people knew this was coming if they listened to any of our previous episodes, I'm still really loving the 3DS. Yeah. I've spent quite a lot of time just revisiting some games that I've probably already played flat, I say in inverted commas, like on the Switch <laughs> or another console. But to experience them again in 3D has been really lovely. So something like Shovel Knight that I own oh. the, the Treasure Trove edition on, on the Switch, I rebought it for the 3DS. And it's so nice to have the extra depth of those parallax layers in the background. It's such a simple effect and it just makes it nicer to look at. Yeah, Everything is more present. All the sprites are kind of it's just more readable as well because there is that kind of delineation between your character and you know everything else behind you. All of the Sega Ages stuff that I, I bought and installed years ago now, like Sonic 1 and 2, Streets of Rage, Gunstar Heroes, all of them are still insanely good on the 3DS. They, they yeah. really are good. Even Steel Empire, which is a really unremarkable shoot-em-up from the Mega Drive that for some reason got a remake on the 3DS, it looks great because, again, you've got that kind of layered backdrop behind it and it just gives it all a sense of depth that is kind of just missing if you played that on the switch i don't think i would have got anything out of this game at all if i played it on a flat format even games to be honest that don't run in 3d because as we all know towards the end of 3ds's life nintendo just gave up bothering with, with stereoscopic <laughs> 3d as they launched the the 2ds and then the new 2ds some games still look really good just because of the screen's low pixel density so the other game I've put a little bit of time into is Terraria, which is my 74th favorite game oh, of all yeah. time. And it just looks nicer on the handheld. It really does because the pixel art is so defined. And, you know, it's great playing stuff in 4K on my TV. It's great playing stuff on, on my laptop. It's got a really nice 
uh, screen resolution as well. But sometimes I think pixel art almost needs coarser edges to look correct. And it's just, it's such a nice handheld. It, it does an awful lot for these games. And it's been really nice to go back and, and revisit some of these titles that I've not played in a long time, but just with sort of this fresh lick of paint, just because it's, you know, on a, on a system that has a feature set that's slightly different. So yeah, really loving that. And finally, I pulled my N64 out and got 100% on Pokemon Snap. So just as a, a nice little oh, side. Wonderful. In, <laughs> in anticipation of the new game in, in a month or two, I, I just had a hankering to, to revisit the original. And it's still really fun. Amazing. Very short, but very fun. It's a great game. It's yeah. really, really good. I can't, absolutely. I'm so excited for the new one as well. I think it's going to be superb. I was messaging you in the week, Chris, when you were saying about how great like pixel art 2D games look on the 3DS. Yeah. And I was saying it's such a shame that <coughs> the Messenger never made it to 3DS. If it, yeah. you know, if the console had lasted a couple more years, then that would have that would have just looked so so good. It's a game that I, you know, I really really enjoyed, and I thought that's the only thing I think that would make it better. Because I, like you, Chris, well, I guess I took inspiration from you. Uh, and in the last couple of weeks, I've also acquired a new 3DS XL. So I could more comfortably revisit some games on 3DS after you know, I had similar cramping complaints when trying to pick up like my, my original smaller new 3DS to play Captain Toad's Treasure Tracker. Yeah. And I must, I mean, I'm really, really glad that I've upgraded to the bigger model, even though, it's, you know, the resolution isn't higher the bigger screen, like you said, it looks great. And the whole device is just much more comfortable to play and hold. And yeah, it's just, it's been a really good opportunity to revisit some games that I never got around to playing. My first port of call was actually, it was to give Donkey Kong Country Returns 3D another go because I played that on the Wii. Well, I played the virtual console version of it on the Wii U, but who's counting? (laughs) But I remember I did buy it on 3DS and thought, it just it was all just a bit too small and I couldn't really see clearly enough what was going on and and it's just it's so much more enjoyable now that everything's just a little bit bigger and the stereoscopic 3D looks great I just, I think that like you said 2D platformers is where stereoscopic 3D really shines because it does give that sense of definition between the layers and especially when the art is as good as it is in you know Donkey Kong and then I went from Donkey Kong to another 2D platformer that passed me by which was the port of Yoshi's Woolly World, entitled Poochie and Yoshi's Woolly World, which has been simultaneously expanded and reduced onto the handheld. (laughs) And it's it's really, really delightful. I've never got on terribly well with the Yoshi games before because of, you know, the the mechanics with the egg throwing, it, it, it never really, I don't know, it never really clicked with me. But I've, I've persevered with it here because one of the nice things about the game is it doesn't rush you, which is is key with this game. It allows you to casually explore the levels, which are packed with secrets, and you can just revel in the gorgeous knitted and crafted environments, which, again, look amazing in stereoscopic 3D. They really, really come to life. And yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's just a shame that there isn't stereoscopic 3d in the other woolly wee port which was kirby's extra epic yarn and it's like you said they kind of nintendo gave up on the stereoscopic element but i mean the game kirby's epic yarn on 3ds does run at 60 frames per second and looks lovely but yeah i just feel it's a missed opportunity to make it just everything would look so much more tactile and tangible but there we go i am also enjoying playing through that game again which is great a lot of platforming <laughs> a lot of platforming yeah uh, and that's just the 2d ones <laughs> because i've also completed super mario 3d world i had a fresh stab at champions road just today and managed to beat it and quite bizarrely if you combine super mario 3d world with yoshi's 3d willy you get another <laughs> game that i've been playing which is over on the ps5 and that's Sackboy, the similarly knitted and crafted 3d platform game which is set up less like the little big planet games from where it sort of stems and it's yeah it's a 3d platformer but it's based around these diorama like levels very very much like super mario 3d world and it's narrated by dawn french which is is quite nice <laughs> they've uh, always had interesting narrators haven't they in the little big planet yes. stuff 
thankfully, gone are the smug, self-satisfied tones of Stephen Fry from the Little Big Planet games. And also, Sackboy's got Richard E. Grant voicing the villain, which is, uh, which is excellent. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't cried, Sackboy, you terrible cunt, uh, yet. <laughs> but I'm expecting they're saving that for a post credit scene. Oh, my Sackboy, my Sackboy, forgive me. <laughs> I've gone on the PlayStation by mistake. <laughs> 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 but having said that i'm not sure i'm going to get to a post credit scene because whilst the game is really lovely and charming and a decent amount of fun i found to be honest i've just got a bit bored of it really and i've only done about two of the five worlds i think there are it's not that it's a bad game it's just when you compare it to something like super mario 3d world or the other 3d mario games it just doesn't compare in terms of how good it feels to control you know, a character in a 3D space. Like, Sackboy doesn't move at a terribly swift pace, which just starts to grate on you after a while, because you want to be kind of, you know, especially if you're trying a level again, you die, you want to try it again, you want to just kind of blast through it a bit. And he's got this little, like, flutter jump, you know, like Yoshi does, but it, does, it, it doesn't really do much at all. It doesn't last long enough or give you enough of a boost to really find a good use for it. And it, so I just find it's just frustrating I found myself like really forcing myself to play the last few levels I played. So I mean, I've had a nice time with it, but I think I'm quite happy just to call it a day and, and trade it in now. Over in the realm of grown-up games, I've Big also boys. played Control, which was last month's PlayStation Plus freebie. And it was fucking mental. <laughs> good mental? Very, very good mental. So it's a sci-fi action-adventure game. And I'm not going to say anything about the story or the concept because I really benefited from going in completely blind with it. All I knew about the game was that it had won quite a lot of awards. That's it. That's, that's so I was like, and it was free, so I was going to give it a go. It's got really good movement, fighting mechanics. You feel really powerful. I mean, there's absolutely no hand holding in the game. Like it's I'm so used to games with like quest markers and stuff like that that you can follow to your next objective and just sort of you know spoke about like things like skyrim being just like a, a glorified to-do list yeah but there's 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 nothing like that at all so you often do feel alone and lost which really feeds into some of the ideas that it's you know it's going for it all gets very meta and very i mean very high concept sci-fi which is is great i'm sure i wasn't the only one who went straight onto youtube after the credits roll to search what was Control about? <laughs> but I definitely recommend it to uh, to try out. I mean, I'm, I hope probably there's a lot of people who have, have added it to their libraries last month. And even if you didn't pick it up for free, it's worth picking up for full price. You can even, they've even got that like streamed version of it on the Switch as well. So there's, you know, that's another way of enjoying it too. But it's a very, very tasty game. Very tasty. One of the other things I did in the last couple of weeks is I attempted to give the Star Wars game Jedi Fallen Order another chance. A second go. Yeah, it's now had a PS5 upgrade, which is nice. But I just, it's not rock solid 60 frames per second. And the loading times are still fairly long. I mean, I know there's only so much you can do. I was reading up a bit about like original code and so much, only so much you can do in terms of optimizing it with a patch. I was expecting to see more improvement because people said it was one that had really benefited. But the main problem is the fact that the main character is still a punchable piece of irk. And <laughs> just another couple of hours playing the game just reminded me of why I put it down in the first place. So that's, yeah, that's another one heading straight for CEX. <laughs> to add to your credit mountain. Yeah, yeah. Played a bit more Demon Souls. Uh, me and my friend Steve found a way to do like private online sessions. So essentially, we can play through the game in co-op, which has been really, really good fun. And I've been playing playing a bit of it on my own in between as well. So I'm yeah, I'm hopefully going to do more of that and get through that game because it's just oh, it's it's just it's so good. It's the design of it is just absolutely fantastic. One last game I'm going to talk about, <laughs> and then I'll stop whispering your ears off. And that is Spider-Man Miles Morales, which I finally got around to finishing. Basically, my return to that came out of a desire to play something that felt really good to play and that had engaging characters because I'd just been a bit disappointed with, you know, with Sackboy and with Jedi Fallen Order. I'd also recently attempted to get into Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but that was, it's just such a soulless game. 
that is just unrelentingly enormous and vapid. It's just, you know, it's just a Ubisoft open world game yeah. with too many things to do that it just feels like it's insulting your time. I'd really hope that the story of Valhalla would draw me in because of my, you know, my Scandinavian roots. It'd be fun to see, you know, how one set of my ancestors came over the seas to kill my other set of ancestors. <laughs> and I know that... You know, there are some nice elements of like folklore woven in, including being able to hunt down Excalibur, I think, as a weapon. But it was just it was just so soulless that I just couldn't invest in it. It, it, I mean, you know, not not to bang the sort of like drum of like cultural appropriation, but the story is obviously being developed with no cultural perspective because it's just the next age for them to do after they've done ancient Egypt, ancient Greece. Now they're doing the Vikings and it's like they systematically mined their way through all of the eras in the first sort of swathe of Assassin's Creed games. So it just, it, it feels like it just doesn't have any substance to it. Miles Morales, on the other hand, is a brilliant sequel. It lets you hit the ground running rather than starting from scratch, which is great, especially, you know, for me, because I came straight off the back of playing the first game. And there's there's lots of the the more advanced movement and fighting mechanics that you unlock in the first game. They're just available right from the start. And it's a much more condensed game, much less sprawling. And it's partly because of that. It, I mean, it's set in the same city. It's the same map. And this is something very key is that the developers do have respect for your time. You know, they can easily just populate the city with an enormous amount of collectibles and missions to gobble up your time. But they really hit the balance right with that because, I mean, there seems to be just the right amount of those side quests to be entertaining and a nice variety uh, in that as well. Some really creative ideas. The story is, it's a slightly simpler story, partly because, I mean, Miles Morales in the story is just starting out on the scene as a new Spider-Man. He hasn't accrued the same wealth of arch arch enemies and previous storylines that Peter Parker has. So his story is is very much focused around him, his family, his friends and his Harlem neighbourhood. And the game is is really nicely diverse as well. And that's something that, I mean, yeah, it's great to see diversity and inclusivity in games. I mean, in any medium, especially from like big budget productions where it actually it's, it's they, they've, you know, they know that they're going to be more visible and, you know, and they're going to reach a, a bigger audience. You know, it's very definitely set in Harlem, which is obviously a predominantly black and Hispanic community. Then the first half hour of the game, you've met a same-sex couple, a deaf character who signs in ASL and seen a huge Black Lives Matter mural on a building wall. And like the overall story has overtones of oppression of minority communities, but without it being like overwrought, it didn't feel crowbarred in or there just to say, you know, just a tick box to say, look, we've got a deaf character. It just felt very, very real and honest and human. The game looks incredible. Like this story is set in the winter, so there's a lot more weather effects in play, and it's it's a real showcase for the PS5. You'll be swinging through the night in a blizzard with the misty, dying light casting long shadows, and I mean, literally everything reflects everything else. It's really, really stunning. <laughs> I've been really, really happy that I, you know, I've got into these two games. It'd be interesting to see what they do next because it's obviously it's a very lucrative little series that they're developing. I mean, if they are going to do more, then they're going to have to break out of New York if they're going to keep things fresh, because these two games have, I mean, they've covered everything you could possibly do in that map. And I know that, you know, New York is very much part of Spider-Man's identity. So it will be interesting to see, you know, see if they do do something next. I mean, they might not. Perhaps they could go down the the Spider-Verse route from Mm. the Into the Spider-Verse film. It's been great. It's fantastic. But that is another one that's going straight into CEX now. (laughs) How about you, Minty? What have you played in the last couple of weeks? Have you played 4,000 games as well? No. I've played (laughs) one game probably for the same amount of time that you've both played your absolute mountains. (laughs) (laughs) When we go to bed, me and my wife like to have a little look at some relaxing videos. And one of the things that we that we watch are just little video clips of whales. Blue whales, grey whales, humpback whales, this, that and the other. Just sort of being there like big and plump in the in, in the water. Relaxing, beautiful, mesmerizing, strange and dangerous, but still comforting. And I think that's 
what I've been feeling playing Bravely Default 2 mm. these uh, these past couple of weeks. Wales. <laughs> Just what a, what, what a wonderfully... This is a this is a really lovely game. I'm really enjoying it. I talked about Chrono Trigger being being the best Final Fantasy game way back when. I think this is the best Final Fantasy three game. It's um, okay because it, it's got the four warriors of light, or the four heroes of light as they are in this game. It's got the job system, and it's really nailed making battles fun. In most of these, uh, in most of these RPGs, you're like, oh, well, I've got to fight all these battles so that I can get experience, so I can become stronger, just to move on the story. But there are there are two things in this game that really, re- really just makes that that ne- that necessary grind fun. There's the job system, and there's also the fact that you can right off the bat up the battle speed to about four times the normal rate. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. First thing I always do in a Pokemon game is turn off battle animations and put tech speed to fast. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it. You've got to. It, it comes back to respecting the time of the, of the player. Exactly, yeah. Oh, as well as the brave and default system, which is kind of the crux of the battles. So you can, much like uh, BP in Octopath Traveler, which I guess sort of took from Bravely because uh, the Bravely series came first. There are two unique battle commands, the Brave and the Default. Brave uses up BP, which you can accrue up to three of. And the more BP you spend, the more turns you can have simultaneously in battle. So, for example, you could... uh, if, if I was fighting you now, Jonathan, mm. if I were just to attack you, I would hit you once with my sword and that would be that. And then it would be your turn. However, if I were to spend some BP, I could spend two BP. I would attack you once. And then once again for each BP I'd spent. So three times, Ooh, mind you. Yeah, that's three sword blows to my face. That's... Yeah. You're a goner. And that's enough to kill you in one turn. Yeah, so immediately, that's one slice taken out of the shithouse of grinding. And then you've also got, yeah, the battle speed, the, the brave and default system. And you've also got the, the the job class system as well. Every Pretty much every boss that I've fought up to this point has been a, a particular job class, like a warrior or a like a white mage or a red mage or a berserker, this, that and the other. They've all got incredibly elaborate costumes and a particular fighting style, different abilities that they have. And if you beat them, you gain their powers and you can be the job that they have. So um, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, Jonathan, you would be, um, let's say we'll have you as a, we'll have you as a ranger. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So you're there in your lovely shimmery green dress with your with your black veil and your bow firing arrows at all of my characters and putting me to sleep and dealing more damage because i'm a human paralyzing me with your with your snare shots or whatever but once i beat you i can become a ranger as well oh it's like captain phillips isn't it yeah i'm the captain i'm the captain now (laughs) yeah yeah so you've got experience points and you've also got job points i assume your character goes up to like level 99 and they have a set stat growth but you've also got 12 levels in your job which give you new abilities and new passive effects. So I think I've spent about 50 hours on the game so far. I I don't think I'm anywhere near halfway through just yet, just because I've been going through and uh, first of all, trying to level up everybody in the starting job category, because it gives you, if you get to the top level of the freelancer class, it gives you a 1.7 job point boost after every battle. And I'm assuming if you win a battle as a freelancer, you don't get money, you get exposure and publicity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Or you chase your payment for several months. Jesus, yeah. So once you once you get, uh, once you you get unlock a passive skill with a character, you can set it as an attribute, and then you can have that no matter what job you have. So I'm, I've got one character who is on level 10 of 12 of the freelancer class. And then once he gets to level 12 and unlocks the job points up and up ability, so that every single character I have now has a 1.7 
draw point multiplier. Then I'll start really looking at um, the different job synergies. There's a lot going on. Yeah. There's a lot. It's it's glorious. I'm having a great time. My impression playing the demo was that it wasn't doing enough different to Octopath Traveler for me to warrant getting it. And like you said, I know that Octopath Traveler <laughs> took quite a bit from Bravely Default in the first place, but I hadn't liked that. But it sounds like, yeah, there's it's a lot more layered. Because mm. Octopath Traveler felt very much like the, the first and foremost thing. I mean, I'm not saying that the story isn't important in Bravely mm. Default, but it felt that actually it was just telling a story and weaving these stories together. That was the priority of Octopath Traveler, which I you know absolutely loved. And the battle system and everything and the job system, and the class system was simple enough for me to actually get my head around and kind yeah, of yeah. develop things with with purpose. Sounds like I'd be a bit lost, I think, with uh, Bravely Default. In Octopath, it was eight stories braided. Mm. But in Bravely Default, you've got the one story, which is the four heroes of light um, looking to restore the balance of the elements in the world to avert uh, environmental calamity making many friends along the way mm. and thwarting all the people that stole those elemental crystals that held the elements in balance in the first place there's a, there's a shift in the in the narrative but it's still it's still really fantastic i'm really really glad because i want to appreciate the game and i feel that i can do that <laughs> by getting your updates mm. vicarious appreciation so the time has come, my friends, to move our attention over to Chris Dow and your list. Your my top list. ten, more specifically, your eighth favourite video game of all time. Buckle up, people, and take us away, Chris. I've said before that one of the real joys of Mario as a platforming franchise <gasps> is that because it codified so much of what we understand as being platforming conventions, that later games in the series can then bend and break and subvert these rules. And that means that Mario, or Nintendo, I guess, has basically put in the legwork to have earned the right to make statements with their design like, you understand jumping should work like this? Well, here, it's going to work like this. Because they they made it up. <laughs> they, they invented how it works, essentially, in modern gaming. It's the same in films or TV when the kind of conventions of a genre are so set and so instilled in us as the audience that filmmakers can play with expectation. You may expect a character to act a certain way. You may expect music to be used in a certain way, lighting to be used in a certain way because you've seen 200 horror films or you've watched a thousand episodes across myriad family sitcoms. When these things don't operate, as you have reasonably assumed, sometimes magic happens. And my game today is a game about games. And it's a game that works on the assumption that you have played and enjoyed games. And it works on the assumption that you've played and understood games like platform games or shooters or score chasers or maze games or rhythm games, just everything really. In the late 80s and 90s, across much of the world, the phrase to play Nintendo basically just meant to play video games. So of course, this genre-defying anarchic spirit comes from the House of Mario, and it is WarioWare. Oh. To give it its full title, WarioWare Inc. Mega Micro Games, an incredibly subversive game of games. It's hard to know where to start with this title, but I'll headline this little spiel with what I'm going to call my WarioWare credentials. So I, I've beaten WarioWare on the Game Boy Advance 100% three times across the course of my life. And that means every micro game unlocked, every micro game's top score beaten. And in as much as in and of itself, that 20 or so hour challenge doesn't really mean much because obviously the two of you have put in north of, what, a thousand hours into the Binding of Isaac over the last month, for instance? <laughs> At least. <laughs> but for me, I've, I've accomplished this feat across three junctures of my life and it's the context of each completion which makes me feel confident in saying this is one of the best games of all time. When the game first released on the Game Boy, I beat it on my little black scratched clamshell SP when I was... I don't know, 14 or 15, I guess it was. That was the era of the, the PlayStation 2. It was the era of Grand Theft Auto moving into the third dimension and becoming just the biggest cultural marker of the time. It was the era of the PlayStation being the cool console to have in your bedroom. It was the era of getting your first Nokia 3310 or first mobile <laughs> phone. I beat it again a decade later when the game was given to early adopters of the 3DS as part of the Ambassador program. Or if we're being totally yeah. honest, just nintendo's apology program for launching a console with no games but, <laughs> but you know I, I beat it on that overpriced handheld in my early 20s 
And for me, like my personal context, that was the era of achievement grinding. I was playing my Xbox 360 almost exclusively. But wider than that, it was the era of proper smartphone gaming. On, on games consoles, it was the era of cover-based shooters, of, of HD machines in the living room. Then a year or so ago, I beat the game for the third time via emulation on my Vita when I was obviously in my early 30s. This then was the time of the Switch, of being able to play console quality games on the TV or on the go, of having powerful home consoles and PCs whose libraries were just basically interchangeable. The 20 hours I spent with the game in my teens, in my 20s and in my 30s were all golden, just a brilliant time. (laughs) And I think the game remains intoxicating regardless of the decade you're playing it in because it's such a lightning in a bottle experience. It's such a simple game, but so layered when you actually start to pick it apart. And it shares a bit of lineage with the arcade light gun game Point Blank because of its rapid fire mini games. It, I guess, shares a little bit with kind of party games like Bishy Bashy Special or even Mario Party on the N64. But what separates it from all of these is how it uses its nomenclature. So they're micro games, not mini games. And these games last three seconds rather than 30 seconds or three minutes or, or longer. And it's this total lack of acclimatization time that makes the experience of WarioWare what it is. The game itself is basically just a collection of hundreds of individual games that establish themselves, ask you to then perform an action, and then grade that action before you move on to something else, all before you can count to five on your fingers. And that rapid fire shuffling is what makes the game just such a thrill. And also what brings it back to what I was saying earlier about genre codes and conventions. So as an example, it's just one of the few hundred games in this title. The game screen pops up, Wario's standing there, there's a coin next to you, and a word will flash up, something like collect. It's just there for a second. But why is it that we know immediately what we're supposed to do? And why is it that we know immediately how to manipulate the control pad in order to do what we need to do? And we know all of these things and more because we've grown up playing Mario or Sonic or any number of derivatives where a smiley character is jumping around using the directional pad towards a collectible. It's Wario, but it could have been any number of sprites or characters. It's a coin, but it could have been any number of shiny MacGuffins. It's just rote genre knowledge that's been just bore into us over time. And in WarioWare, Nintendo are cleverly exploiting like our lizard brain's underlying ability to co-opt the linguistics of genre. And it's such an astoundingly complex process that we're able to pass in milliseconds. And Nintendo's bet in 2003, when this first came out, that we'd be able to do this this quickly is really ballsy and confident. Like it's, it's a developer leaning back and saying, we know how this shit works and we know that you know how this shit works. And it's it's such a brilliant transfer of agency that it's just astounding to see everything unfold in real time in a package that is as colourful and madcap and, and disparate as this game is. What's amazing is that across WarioWare, you'll see this same process applied to almost every core genre that's existed to date to that point. And it's just really, really clever. Like one of the other many things I I love about this game is the art and aesthetic of the whole thing. I mentioned it when I talked about Rhythm Tengoku, again, a long, long time ago. But every micro game in this is illustrated and scored in its own way. And there's something very utilitarian, I think, about what I imagine the submission process for development was like. It feels like a developer would have walked in, shown off what they had an idea for, and then basically if the game was readable, as in did it make sense mechanically and visually at a quick glance, as long as that was the case, it was was in the game. I I don't think there was like anything went in the bin with this. It was just, does it work? Yep, stick it in. (laughs) So you've got games that are essentially a wireframe style test your might game of timing, Uh, You might have a game where you're matching up sections of photorealistic vegetables. Uh, You could be sniffing up liquid back into the runny nose of a stylized anime girl. There's no consistency in how these games look. (laughs) And that's precisely where the consistency comes from. Because instead of worrying about does game A look like game B or does it flow into them or anything like that, it just lets the game have its own framing between each micro game. And that's what grounds the experience and not, you know, it's not the games themselves. So they can look and sound as out there as you like. Whilst between each one, between each kind of like five second game, you've got the Wario font, you've got your score at the top, you've got your life counter, you've got a repeating musical sting that plays before you're thrown back into the next challenge. And it's just a game of such unadulterated punk spirit. I think it really is a game that just plays fast and loose with what things are meant to look like and what they're meant to sound like. 
but it does so with just such absolute conviction that some of the micro games feel like ropey and half finished almost just a bit undercooked but when they persist for less time than it takes to have a drink of water it doesn't matter like it just it's only there to serve the wider experience warrior also has a brilliant sense of humor that will often hide even more mechanical depth like there's there's just there is so much going on in this title so every micro game has variations which up the difficulty on each subsequent pass. So if you're playing in a mix of games, the second time one comes round, it will be a little bit harder. If you're just kind of score chasing in one particular micro game, it will get harder as it goes. But the way it does that is that maybe the timing will change. Maybe you need to be a little bit more accurate with whatever you're being asked to do. There could be more enemies to kill, more collectibles to grab. Sometimes these iterative changes in a challenge are just played really straight, but sometimes they're incredibly playful. So, for instance, one of my favourite stages that will persist in my memory probably till I die at this point is you standing on one side of the stage and you just have to jump over a vehicle that comes towards you. It's a one-button test of reflexes, so it's it's perfectly readable. You know exactly what you need to do as soon as something approaches your character. As the difficulty starts to ramp up, it goes from being a car, fair enough, to a hot dog on wheels, okay, to <laughs> a potato, all right, and then to just nothing. And... <laughs> In that moment-to-moment gameplay, it's still playing with this idea of expectation because it's built you up to expect something greater. And then just to let the payoff be that you're just standing there, it's really funny. Like, it's it's such a clever bait-and-switch at that point that it again relies on you understanding what should be there. Like, it's a simple joke, but there's just a real economy in how these simple additions or subtractions work to extend the format of a microgame that is two seconds long. It doesn't need any additional guidance. It doesn't need any additional text to teach you that something is changing or that you need to do something differently. It's all about you relying on prior knowledge of a genre framework or the game knowledge that you've got from the first or second or third pass of that micro game. Because by that point, you've picked up the internal rules and, and you've picked up the idea that this is an inherent ramping challenge. It's just everything is there communicated so seamlessly. There is a brilliant level in Super Mario 3D World that we've talked about quite a lot recently that I've always really loved, where at the start of the stage, you're stood about five yards from the flagpole. And when you go to leap on it, it just sprouts legs and runs away. And I think it's, it's one of my favorite jokes in all the video games. And I think that that one joke represents a real chunk of the the spirit of WarioWare right there. It's just a quick visual gag, but again, it's playing with what you think should happen and then subverting that expectation. After the original WarioWare, we would get twisted, the Game Boy Advanced follow-up, complete with the gyro sensor in the cartridge, which was really good. We'd get WarioWare touched on the DS, which explored what the touchscreen, the new dual-screen handheld could do to the formula, which again was was really, really good. We had WarioWare DIY, where you could make your own micro-games with the art and the sound and all. You know, it was a bit tough to grasp, but still really great once you got the hang of it. We had WarioWare Snapped, a little downloadable title that used the camera on the DSi, which was, you know, a, a nice enough distraction for an evening. It wasn't a, wasn't a full-size game. And finally, we had WarioWare Smooth Moves on the Wii, which even with the reduced accuracy of the Wiimote was still really good fun. But none of them could quite recapture the originality of the initial release because I think this game released at just the perfect juncture in time where games as a medium were old enough to have their own unspoken rules and codes and conventions and alongside the mainstream rise of consoles, meaning that WarioWare sat in this perfect pool of being incredibly prescient and forward-thinking whilst also showcasing a sort of retro cool decades before people would start collectively tiring of developers trading on NES nostalgia. It was just substance and style in one slick little cartridge. All of the game sequels, and in some cases imitators as well, because there have been kind of like games that were definitely inspired by WarioWare, they just missed the boat on what truly made the original so great, because it was a game that was both a retrospective for gaming to that point, but also a very clear statement for the future. And a game that was released at a cultural peak for the medium where games now have expanded and genres have have splintered ever kind of like finer. But far more developers now owe a weird tangential debt to WarioWare than might realise because it was one of the first games that stated with proper confidence, trust your players and trust the medium. And, you know, for all this glowing praise, I, I genuinely think that WarioWare may simultaneously be the most immediate and also the most cerebral high concept game Nintendo has ever released. <laughs> and yet talking about the game in this way is to ignore so much of what the package offers outside of this core idea. 
There's excellent writing and localization between every single micro game because it's got flavor text when you go to select it from the menu. Every character in the game has their own kind of Saturday morning cartoon style story replete with cutscenes. There's a wealth of unlockables that repurpose some Nintendo classics in their entirety, uh, but with Wario as the protagonist, like Dr. Wario, <laughs> which is basically just a full one-to-one remake of the NES game. There's two-player minigames that can be played on a single console with one player on face buttons and one on the D-pad that essentially would go on to inspire the GameCube spin-off WarioWare Mega Party games. There's too much to list in this weird little experiment of a game, and I'm sure that some of its most ardent fans probably haven't seen all it has to offer, but it is absolutely one of the greatest games of all time, and personally, it is my eighth favourite game that I have ever, ever played in my life. <laughs> Fantastic. I have recently got hold of a copy of WarioWare DIY again for uh, preparation for a potential creative special episode of, of, of this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to, to, to giving that a go and, um, and making some games, making some silly games based around this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So there we have it. That is Chris's eighth favourite video game of all time. And in case you've just skipped to this part of the podcast, what was it, Chris? <laughs> in case you haven't listened to the last half an hour, it was WarioWare Inc. Mega Micro Games. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do subscribe to the podcast and share it on social media. Reach out to us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash R3Cents. Instagram, Twitch and TikTok at O3C Podcast youtube search for our three cents you'll find us there chat to us about the games that you're playing take us to task on our opinions on these games also please tell us what your top 10 favorite video games of all time are we're also going to be banking those for a future bloody special episode it's going to be great you can even take us to task individually target us one-to-one if you dare on twitter i'm at jonathan dunn i am at Chaz underscore hodges and I'm Clement underscore boo. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, please do head over to patreon.com slash r3cents, have a look at some of those perks, and consider pledging a few pennies our way to help us grow the podcast and keep the high-quality content coming. And join us next week, where Minty will be telling us all about his eighth favourite video game of all time. I can't wait. Can you? I can't wait. You have to. Oh. Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual format to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the Gathering. Come along and play! Come on in, what can I get you? Sure, I've heard of Hair of the Dogcast. They're that podcast about video games and beer. From the latest gaming headlines to diving deep into the games of yesterday to sampling and reviewing craft beer from all over the world, Hair of the Dogcast is here for the gamer and beer lover in all of us. Available weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network.